Mysterious Universe, Season 23, Episode 17. Coming up on the show, we've got Weaponizing the Kugel Blitz, the Siliconoid War of 1884, and the Rendlesham Conspiracy Exposed. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. You have to forgive me, but you can understand, given it's this show, Kugelblitz sounds filthy. Is that what we're going into? Yeah. (laughs) It sounds German and it sounds filthy. (laughs) Sounds like some kind of uh, super Nazi weapon, maybe? Is it actually a super Nazi weapon? Well, you'll just have to find out. You'll just have to keep listening. A couple of great books came out this week. The first one on my list, which I mentioned uh, on the last Plus show, was Selected by Extraterrestrials Volume 2. Remember Volume 1 came out from William Tompkins, the guy who was an engineer who worked for NASA for years. He claimed that the blonde secretaries at NASA were actually Pleiadian women in disguise. Oh, this is the space Lamborghini guy. <laughs> and by the end of the book, he had sex with one of these Nordic secretaries in the back of a space Lamborghini, which was actually a UFO. So, right, it is sexual. <laughs> but that that came out, and you know I, I pre-ordered that Straight away, as soon as I saw it. <laughs> Like I actually pre-ordered 10 copies. Like, I love that first book so much. Wasn't that book like the end of Greece where they flew off into the sky in a space land? Isn't <laughs> that much. what happened? Pretty much. Right. Um, but that came out this week and I thought, hang on, if something to, would come along and trump that book, you would know that it would have to be special. It would be, yes. And none other than Nick Redfern has come out with what I think is perhaps his best work in the last you know, five years or so. Really? Uh, Certainly up there with his book on the Collins Elite. Yeah. Uh, This is the Rendlesham Forest UFO Conspiracy, A Close Encounter Exposed, and I won't reveal the rest of the title because it's a bit of a spoiler. Oh. (laughs) But the Rendlesham Forest uh, incident, of course, is perhaps the UK's most infamous UFO incident. Wasn't it Christmas Eve? I know the 26th of December in 1980. Can't remember the exact date, 1980s, but a strange triangular... Was it 80 itself? Yeah, Yeah, December 1980. Strange triangular-shaped craft showed up. There's a lot of stories about there being hieroglyphics on the outside of the craft, doing strange things to people. I mean, what is there possibly else to know about Rendlesham? Yeah, what else else could you write on Rendlesham? I mean, it's considered the the Roswell of the UK. Very much so, yeah. Uh, But Nick has really blown the lid off this, and he has an entirely new angle on the Rendlesham Forest incident. He's got a whole ton of documents and research to back it up. It's so incredible, it actually trumped Space Lamborghini. (laughs) Sex sex in the back of a Space Lamborghini. So I'm going to be going into that today and introducing uh, some of Nick's ideas on what actually happened. And this year is the 40-year anniversary of the Rendlesham Forest Mm -hmm. incident. So it's uh, a good time for Nick to release this work. But uh, what have you got coming up? Because you've been working hard as well. Well, I'm really looking forward to this because I feel a little bit after we spoke about Mora's work, about you know UFOs and abductees and some of the people that had experiences in, from a contactee perspective mm. well before the UFO kind of, I guess, popular culture idea took off. You know, 1947 is when it started getting into the vernacular. Moira had cases from the 20s and 30s. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to see if I could find some cases that went back further than that, went back to that kind of range. And I found this incredible story of a UFO crash that was alleged to happen in Nebraska, of all places, back in 1884. And when this crash took place, the details surrounding it are just surreal. It kind of fits in with the writings of the time because I didn't know how to describe what they saw and what the vehicle was actually doing. But what was odd is that as I was looking up that story and looking for more details, it tied in 
perfectly with some parallel research that I've been doing from John Keel. Oh, okay. So I've been looking into some of the John Keel work recently because I just love him. I think he's a really great researcher and I know that he became very cynical towards the end. And I understand because you're just faced with, you keep on searching for answers in this field and you just keep on getting new, you know, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Yeah, it's a bit like you. Kind of, in a way. Well, I don't <laughs> it's think, like a brother in arms. I don't think I'm John Keel in any way, but I do understand that feeling. I actually think that, and it's ironic that you're doing Nick's book, I think Nick Redfern is the new John Keel. I think he's facing very similar things that, you know, he's pushing into the phenomenon and the phenomenon's pushing back towards yeah, him. I wouldn't argue with that. But the story that I found from John Keel, this theory he put together about uh, UFOs gassing not only individuals, but entire towns. And I'd kind of heard some of these sorts of stories before, uh, nothing like what John Keel has gone into. And amazingly enough, just through pure coincidence today of or this week of looking at these stories, they collide perfectly and relate to something known as the siliconoids and the smellies. So all, <laughs> I know the, the smellies and the smellies. Yes, all of that will be revealed. <laughs> Imagine in the extension. your your highly advanced uh, species from another galaxy, and you travel across the vast distances of, of space to a little blue planet, and they call you the smellies. The smellies. So what the smellies are? Just <laughs> we are you. from Alpha Four B. We are here to <laughs> meet your leaders. No, you're the smellies. Well, they actually are. They actually, and this is why they're called the smellies. So I won't give it away. But essentially, the smellies are is in the 1950s, particularly across the US, but they have been reported across the entire globe. In the 1950s, people started seeing UFOs, just lights, not even craft, just lights hovering over fertilizer facilities, over chemical plants, over locations that had a particular smell to them, a hydrogen sulfide kind of smell, rotten eggs kind of smell. And then they started, and these people have lived in these homes for a long time, and they've never smelt anything inside their homes. But after these lights appeared in the 1950s, they started having the scent appear in their home. And that escalated to them actually bumping into entities that were invisible that reeked of hydrogen sulfide gas in their homes and they could hear breathing while they're in their bedrooms at night, like a breathing apparatus. Classic smellies. Being utilised by some type of invisible being. Isn't there another name? No, <laughs> that's what they call them. not take any of it seriously. Because they're called the smellies. <laughs> they're they called stink. The, the smellies. They absolutely stink, but the gas actually links to something far more terrifying, which comes all the way back to that crash back in the 1800s. All right. Well, we'll turn back the clock on this segment to 1980, December of 1980. Of course, we're going to go back to where the whole Rendlesham Forest episode began, of course, back to Rendlesham Forest. Uh, It's in the county of Suffolk in England. I'll just run through the story very quickly so we've got it fresh in our minds to dive into Nick's research. No, it's good. We should rehash a little bit. You know, it's a beautiful forest. Nick writes that deers and badgers and foxes roam free. It's a wonderful, tranquil place. It's 1,400 acres. Is it near the Cannock Chase? I don't think so. Okay. Um, it, it was the site of the UK's most infamous UFO encounter, of course. Uh, the Rendlesham Forest incident is a legendary. You've probably uh, read a bunch of books on it if you're listening to this show. You've you've certainly probably seen it on a documentary over the years. Uh, but again, this year is the 40-year anniversary, and the event is still shrouded in mystery. But this is a mystery Nick Redfern believes he, he might have cracked he might be very close to understanding what really went on 40 years ago. So the forest itself is adjacent to what used to be the joint base between the US and, and uh, Royal UK Royal Air Force. Uh, it's the the twin complexes of Bentwaters and Woodbridge. Ah, uh, Bentwaters, there you go. Yeah, so of course that strange immediately activity. brings up uh, memories of crazy stories. So personnel at, at both these bases... They played significant roles, Nick writes, during World War II, fighting off the Nazis. And in the aftermath of the war, 
and particularly when the Cold War began, these bases, they still had a really important strategic position in the country. Uh, They ended up closing in 1993, but at their peak, Nick points out they had over 13,000 personnel at the twin facilities. In addition, there was several thousand American personnel living off base. And if you believe the rumours, the base was home to quite a large number of nukes. Now, Nick points out to understand what really happened that night, you've, you've got to go back to the beginning and there's really two key events to look at. Well, there's the events themselves, he says, but there's also that legendary memo. And it comes from the Lieutenant Colonel uh, Charles Holt. He was the deputy base commander at RAF Bentwaters. And it was on January the 13th, 1981, that Holt prepared the following report and sent it to the UK Ministry of Defence, the MOD, uh, for them to check out. So because this is really where this all started, I'm just going to read you the three paragraphs he wrote. Mm -hmm. So it was early in the morning, 27th of December, uh, 1980, approximately 0300, two US Air Force security police patrolmen saw unusual lights outside the back gate at RAF Woodbridge. Thinking an aircraft might have crashed or been forced down, they called for permission to go outside the gate to investigate. The on-duty flight chief responded and allowed three patrolmen to proceed on foot. The individuals reported seeing a strange glowing object in the forest. The object was described as being metallic in appearance and triangular in shape, approximately two to three metres across the base and approximately two metres high. It's a very dry very dry report. Well, There's nothing technical. spicy about this. It's a very technical yeah. uh, military report. He said it illuminated the entire forest with a white light and the object itself had a pulsing red light on top and banks of blue lights underneath. The object was hovering or on legs, he said. As the patrolman approached the object, it manoeuvred through the trees and disappeared. At this time, the animals on a nearby farm went into a frenzy. The object was briefly sighted approximately an hour later near the back gate. Two, he says, the next day, three depressions were found 1.5 inches deep, 7 inches in diameter, where the object had been sighted. The following night, this is the, the 29th of December, 1980, the area was checked for radiation, and they found small amounts of radiation uh, near the centre of the triangle formation of these uh, indents. A nearby tree had moderate radiation readings on the side of the tree towards the depressions. Uh, number three, he says, later in the night, a red sun-like light was seen through the trees, It moved about and pulsed. At one point, it appeared to throw off glowing particles and then broke into five separate white objects and then disappeared. Immediately thereafter, three star-like objects were noticed in the sky, two objects to the north and one to the south, all of which were about 10 degrees off the horizon. The objects moved rapidly in sharp, angular movements and displayed red, green and blue lights. Objects to the north appeared to be elliptical through an 8-12 to power lens. They then turned to full circles. Objects to the north remained in the sky for an hour or more. The object to the south was visible for two or three hours and beamed down a stream of light from time to time. Numerous individuals, including the undersigned, witnessed the activities in paragraphs two and three. And he signs it Charles Holt, Lieutenant Colonel, US Air Force Deputy Base Commander. So a groundbreaking mm. document when it was leaked out. I mean, here is a, a seriously ranking Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force laying out what really sounds like some kind of uh, exotic craft from somewhere else, certainly not uh, military techno- technology. But the thing about uh, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt is he left a lot out, obviously. Of course. It's I a mean, very 
dry matter-of-fact report of just the basics that went on that night. Well, you have to use an element of military tact as well. You don't want to be saying, I saw something that was really crazy and I'm really scared. <laughs> You're not going to say that as a lieutenant colonel. No. Uh, of course, he left most of it out. Uh, specifically, the two most important and credible figures of the entire story you know, Nick points out this is John Burroughs and Jim Penniston. So Burroughs was in the Air Force for more than a quarter of a century. He worked in law enforcement. But Penniston, uh, he entered the US Air Force in 1973. And at the time, he was a senior security officer. But both men, I mean, they had the really strange encounters that night. Penniston is the guy that actually touched the craft. Right. And from what I recall, when he touched the craft, didn't he have some type of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, an information download or some... Yeah. Yeah. He started seeing code. Yeah. He saw binary code. Uh, so I was looking for a clip of his experience. And in fact, I think the most concise clip I could find was actually Ancient Aliens, like an Ancient Aliens episode. So excuse the whooshing sound effects. <laughs> but just, It's all good. We'll forgive you. Yeah, here's a quick clip, which has got Gary uh, Heseltine, which was a, a UK-based UFO researcher who spent you know, 40 years looking into Rendlesham. Uh, there's also Nick Pope featured and then Penniston himself, recording or recalling his experience. Let's take a listen. Strange lights were seen about three to 400 metres away from an area that was called the East Gate. And the patrolling officers at the East Gate saw the lights above the forest and they thought potentially it was a downed aircraft or an aircraft in distress. So two of them, Sergeant Penniston and Airman John Burroughs, went further into the forest. Once at the so-called crash site, the men observed a strange triangular craft on the ground, approximately three meters wide at its base. It appeared to be either hovering or on legs. And it had clearly come down into this small clearing and smashed some of the branches off the trees. So there was, there was physical evidence which was looked at afterwards. And so the men looked at this strange object I noticed that there was an inscription on the side of the uh, aircraft. I was expecting to find, uh, I don't know, USAF, uh, something like that. And what I find is glyphs, uh, pictorial glyphs, making no sense at all. And then I was running my hand over the side of the craft. It was very warm to touch. At this time, we were getting the feeling of electricity that was just bouncing. It was much, much stronger. There was this feeling of being drawn into it or being pulled into it. Like someone was holding a picture of zeros and ones in my mind's eye. Yeah, so again, he saw binary code. That's what he claims happens. And there was much more to this. In fact, Nick wrote an article on our site back in May of 2018 where he detailed uh, Sergeant Penniston's hypnosis that he had in 1994 to try and recall some of what happened because he lost memory after this experience and it's kind of crazy. It's not really the focus of this show, but essentially uh, under hypnosis, hypnosis, he stated that the aliens are in reality us from the future. They're us oh, from the yes. far, far future. Mm -hmm. uh, and that future is kind of screwed because everything's super polluted and the human race is overwhelmed with reproductive problems. We have to clone, keep cloning each other. Uh, the answer to these massive problems is to uh, travel back in time to to our time and steal our sperm and, and eggs. Hence why we've got the hybrid program happening. Well, it's not a hybrid program. Well, they're just stealing. It's just people from the future <laughs> trying to take our sperm and eggs. So 
this is, yeah, this is their attempt to save themselves in the future. Crazy, crazy story. But again, you know, there's a whole other kind of rabbit hole to go down, which is not the focus because Nick's not entirely sure any of that is worth paying attention to. Well, the problem with hypnosis, which we know, is that it, and we were only talked about this last week when we did the Alan Godfrey stuff, where he had the strange experience in, uh, was it Yorkshire? Where he had that yeah. had seen a UFO, he had undergone regression. But he himself actually admits that even though when he did the regression and he recalled very strange things, a black dog being on board the UFO, he said, look, I was also reading a lot of science fiction at the time. So even though what I said in the hypnosis session was real, yeah. it was real to me. I don't know if it was some type of interpretation of what I was reading at the time. Yeah, that's a worry when the person being regressed isn't even sure if it's real. Yeah. Well, John Burroughs, the other uh, witness, he recalled uh, one particular incident in the woods that night. He said, we had a blue transparent light come streaking towards us. Uh, he also said there was a sergeant, Adrian Bustinza, who also had close-up encounters Um he apparently went down to the ground and then Bustinza, Bustinza watched as Burroughs went into that same light and Bustinza claims he saw Burroughs disappear. Burroughs added that Bustinza saw the light explode and he said, I was gone for several minutes before reappearing. I have no recall of it. So super strange, strange. occurrences going on. Uh, and all of this, if all of this occurred on a top secret military installation, how did the world find out about it? How did this story get out? Well, the answer is kind of Jenny Randall's. <laughs> I mean, she's a big part of it. Uh, she had help at the time, of course. There was three key researchers that broke this story. There was Brenda Butler, Dot Street, and Randall's actually joined the trio, the, what became the trio a year later. And together they wrote the first book on the incident called Sky Crash. And Nick gives a bit of background on how they managed to get the story out. Uh, so Brenda lived not at all far from the forest and she had plenty of contacts in the region and they, of course, were friends who worked for the military. Mm -hmm. And she would hear tales all the time, you know, fun military stories and little anecdotes and things. But then she started to hear these rumours swirling around something strange having taken place outside of RAF Woodbridge. So Dot and Brenda were friends. They decided to take a deep and careful look into the story. And then, as I said, Jenny joined in 1981. But the the three of them were pretty soon on, on the heels of this crazy story. And their conclusion was really that this was pointing towards aliens. This was some kind of UFO incident. This was, yeah, like I said, the UK's Roswell. One of their key informants at the time was uh, Steve Roberts. That was his... That pseudonym. Was his pseudonym. Yeah. But remember the, the UFO researcher I played a clip of just a moment ago, Gary Heseltine, uh, he was a former Royal Air Force officer and he later discovered that Steve Roberts was actually J.D. Ingalls who was confirmed to be on the base at the time of the incident. He was a sergeant in the reports and analysis section of the security police squadron. So absolutely the information they were getting was Legit. from solid sources. It's not just a... Because at the time, I mean, the Ministry of Defence didn't even admit to to anything at all. Well, of course they wouldn't, yeah. There was no official word on what had happened. So it's all rumour up until that point. Yeah, so Sky Crash kind of broke the story and Nick says it was fascinating to read it. There was shadowy characters, there was Ministry of Defence chicanery, sinister going-ons in the woods, there was tales of ET visitation, military figures hiding their real names because they didn't want to get, you know, taken out. And he says in the weeks and months that followed, the Ministry of Defence didn't say a word 
didn't even acknowledge what was being published. Not a comment, nothing. And the rumours just kept on spreading. And he says to demonstrate how incredibly careful and determined the MOD was to try and keep everything under wraps, it wasn't until April the 13th, 1983, that an official admission was actually made to Jenny Randalls that a handful of lights had been seen in the vicinity of the woods that night. By who? When you say official, was it the Ministry of Defence? Right. And and the, the, the lights were perhaps unexplained. It took them two years just to say, eh, yeah, might, lights are there. there might have been some lights. We're not sure. We don't care. It's probably a car. Yeah. So two months after this, this is when uh, Colonel Holt's memo came out that I just read you. And that, so was, that was leaked. Yeah, that was eventually, no, it was actually declassified by the US Freedom of Information Act. Oh. And it turned out it was obtained by the US researcher Robert Todd, but he was told that the US actually destroyed their copy, but when he did the Freedom of Information Act request, some clerk at the Air Force was like, oh, we don't have this, but we know it was a joint thing with the UK. Let's uh, get in contact with them and see if they've got a copy. And they they somehow got a copy and it got released. It was just like through this bureaucracy that a copy of the memo managed to leak out. And... Despite the memo being released, the UK Ministry of Defence was still saying, uh, nothing happened. No, we we have no record of that. No. Sorry. Just a couple, nothing happened. Swamp gas. A couple of lights. So Nick points out that this stubborn stance of the Ministry of Defence has never changed. No. It's just always been the same. And if you think, you would think that even if it was some crazy UFO landing, right, you think they'd have a cover story by now. You think there'd be something... Well, like even Roswell has the balloon story. Well, but that was because with Roswell, they had done, you know, a, a page one announcement that they'd gotten a crash saucer the day before. So they had to come up with the story. With this, it's complete deniability. It's like you don't address even the rumours. But you've got, it's a the memo, British way. you've got a memo out here now that's released by the United States government, yeah. by the United States military. You've got all these books flying around and still nothing? Yeah. you think they'd come up with something. So... Uh, About a year after this memo gets released, a a copy of Colonel Holt's audio recording from the night gets leaked as well. So now we've got this to deal with. So Nick includes all these uh, intriguing extracts from the audio, uh, but he notes that when you're looking through the transcript, you you can't really get across the urgency in Colonel Holt's voice and what he's feeling that night. Uh, Luckily, I have the recording here. It's, It's 18 minutes long. And I'm obviously not going to play 18 minutes. Uh, I'll <laughs> link 17 minutes. I'll link to yeah, I'll link to the full recording in the show notes. The first 10 minutes, nothing really happens. But basically, he was going out uh, with a, a tape recorder, and the the whole tape is only 20 minutes long. But you got to remember they were in the forest for a couple of hours, and this was always used by skeptics to say, oh, the tape must be faked. Like, if he was out there for hours, why is the recording only 20 minutes? And Holt actually came out in uh, 2008 to address this and said, look, I just had one tape with me. The tapes are only 20 minutes long. Yeah, yeah. So he said, what I was doing is I was quickly recording something, then stopping, Yeah. and then I would wait till something else happened, then I'd click record again. And he said, I must have got pressed click record about 100 times that night. So the recording is a bunch of clicks and stops of him describing what, what he saw. Now, I've edited this down to about 90 seconds. Okay. We get the highlights. Uh, this is the highlights. Let's take a listen. 
200 yards from the site. Everything else is just deathly calm. There is no doubt about it. There's some type of strange flashing red light ahead. There's yellow. I saw a yellow tinge in it, too. Yellow. It's coming this way. It is definitely coming this way. Pieces of it are shooting off. There is no doubt about it. This is weird. first kind of cut that audio up, I ran it through a program I've got here that kind of cleans everything up and, you mm. know, compresses everything. But when I listened back to it, I realized it, it didn't have the same effect because it removed all his breathing. And if you listen to the first 10 minutes, he's very like, okay, let's guys go over here, check out this tree. Oh, the tree's been broken, you know, take a photo of that. But by the end, he's, <gasps> yeah. he's really, to his the- heart rate's up. Yeah, it's breathing fast. They have no idea what's going on. One thing I didn't include is at one point he's commenting on a farm nearby, and the animals are freaking out. Can you hear that in the audio? No, you can't hear the animals. The audio quality is awful. But he's the he mentions it several times that there's just mayhem on this farm. Yeah, and then there's a certain point where he says, all of a sudden, oh, they've stopped, and it's just completely quiet and he's commenting that the forest is now eerily quiet so like the, the Oz, Oz effect the yeah. Oz effect has kicked in and it's it's just bizarre I think that audio you know really tells you that at least uh, Colonel Holt and uh, the personnel he was with they're experiencing something real they were freaking out yeah so more revelations surfaced in 1984 there was a book that came out called Clear Intent by Lawrence Fawcett and Barry Greenwood it had six pages of material that added to the story uh, it had claims of confiscated radar tapes, of metallic craft, of entities seen at a clearing in the forest. So it, it had a scenario that was similar to the end of um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, like boo, boo, yeah. boo, boo, boo. Uh, you know, a- aliens coming out. It was crazy. And then Jenny Randalls wrote her own book called uh, From Out of the Blue in 1991, and that had the latest data. Uh, but it, it was odd because Randalls introduced all these ideas that the incidents might not have had anything to do with aliens. She suggested maybe there was a nuclear incident that ha- that had occurred. Uh, there was a secret mini helicopter that had crashed, perhaps a stealth jet or a drone that had gone berserk. But Randall said not all of these could possibly have been correct and very likely none of them were. And Nick says Jenny was right. None of those theories were the correct one will soon come to the truth of it all. So Nick's very confident that he's solved this. And it, So it is aliens? 
No, he discusses his meeting with Nick Pope in 1994. Now, for those of you who don't know, Nick Pope took over the official UFO investigation office of the Ministry of Defence in 1991. And he was he was open. He was like refreshingly talkative about what they had. So Nick uh, was proactive and decided to have a sit down with Nick Pope in 1994. And he describes in the book, you know, sitting down at a pub and having a beer and trying to get Nick Pope to chat about what the Ministry of Defence knew about UFOs. And the answer was not very much, mm. not very much at all. And Nick Pope, communicated just what their budget was for the entire division of the Ministry of Defence UFO Investigations Division. It was basically Nick Pope's salary and a little bit left over for staplers and paper. <laughs> like, that was it. They had no money, uh, and Nick Pope admitted to Redfern, like, when he investigates cases that come in, he never goes into the field. He just sits at a, it. a desk all day. He logs reports, they go in a file and they get sent somewhere else. Oh, look, it's a real just kind of weak way of dealing with it, isn't it? It's just like, oh, well, we've got someone who's dealing with it, but eh, we don't need it. It's just to have a guy on the phone, yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, And Pope did tell Nick that there is a file that's there. The Minister of Defence does have a file on Rendlesham, but he didn't have any details. And he said, one thing he said was, it's not disputed that something strange was seen by Colonel Holt. Uh, and the other personnel, but what's obviously in dispute is what it was, what was seen. And there was a chap, he said, this is from Nick Pope, he said there was a guy that put forward a theory that it was simply the Orford Ness lighthouse reflecting through the trees. No, a lighthouse doesn't cause someone to breathe heavily and the animals to go crazy and then suddenly stop. Dude, lighthouses are spooky. Have you? <laughs> well, they are. No, I know that. I've done stories on lighthouses. Have you ever been out in the forest and there's a lighthouse in the distance? My God. Oh, oh, Last time that happened to me, I peed my pants. <laughs> Super scary stuff. I know, it was embarrassing. Uh, so what this means, essentially, uh, according to Nick, is that Pro- po- Nick Pope, who is the number one guy in the Ministry of Defence UFO project, doesn't know shit. <laughs> he doesn't... Didn't he become quite cynical as well? Is that well? You know, later on, it's argued that he kind of used his time at the Ministry of Defence to, I guess, be a foundation for making money of the UFO field later. So oh, he was wow. always featured in, you know, he wrote he books is, yeah. and he's always in documentaries, and you know, that's I'm not going to comment on that, but. Nick said when he interviewed Pope, uh, you could learn more from reading a Jenny Randall's book. Right. Right. He didn't really know anything. But when he asked Nick Pope what exactly was in the file that the Ministry of Defence had, Pope said it's just a correspondence file. He said, what we don't have is anything that shows what, if any, consideration was given to the case by the Ministry of Defence at the time in 1980. He said, I'm not even clear it got through to us. And so what all of this tells us, according to Nick, is that if there was a cover-up, Nick Pope wasn't part of it. And he says, there's no doubt in my mind that Pope was out of any kind of highly classified loop concerning the encounters in the woods. He just didn't have a need to know. Yeah. But what was clear, according to Nick Redfern, is that once the MOD file on Rendlesham was declassified in 1991, it showed that the MOD really just kind of took a back seat and just let the rumours fly. Why would they do that? Why would they let the rumours go? Great question. Why would you just let it spin out of control? It's like five books talking about aliens and nukes and crazy experiments. It was almost as if they were fine with these rumours swirling about, almost like it was part of the plan, perhaps. Disinformation? Maybe. 
So the file revealed, this is eventually what came out in 90, 1991, uh, <laughs> this kind of half-assed investigation. Mm-hmm. They didn't even interview Colonel Holt or the airmen that had the experiences. So who did they talk to? I've no idea. I mean, but out of the people at the base, you think you'd speak to the guys to the witnesses. that saw the spooky lighthouse, right? So that wasn't the end of the matter, though. In 2011, the BBC's Neil Henderson wrote uh, there was a bit of a breakthrough in the story. Uh, intelligence papers on a reported UFO sighting, he wrote, known as the Rendlesham Incident, have gone missing. The disappearances came to light with the release of 8,000 previously classified documents on UFOs, but officials found a huge gap where defence intelligence files relating to the case should have been. The files also referred to a deliberate attempt to eradicate the records covering this incident. So despite the Ministry of Defence doing an investigation... (laughs) They were still trying to cover it up. They were still destroying evidence, trying to keep the thing under wraps. So what are they keeping under wraps? Okay, so obviously something happened. Something major happened. I mean, it's pretty hard to cover up a lighthouse. But this is where we start to get a sense of what's really going on. Nick says, let us now see why I conclude the Rendlesham Forest incidents had not a single solitary thing to do with extraterrestrials, but everything to do with high-tech secret experimentation. So that changes everything. Throw UFOs and aliens out the window, Aaron. What about lighthouses? Maybe. Well, maybe. Hold we on. Throw them it as well? could be a high-tech lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> some, One of those automated ones. Some kind of rogue lighthouse yeah. got out of control. It became sentient. <laughs> no. Well, this, blinding pilots. <laughs> this is where Nick goes into the location, the area of where this occurred, and why the area is a magnet for classified programs. So when he's talking about the area, he's not just talking about Rendlesham Forest. He's talking about the surrounding locales, uh, their mysterious histories. He says it's vital to note that the entire area just has been, like I said, this magnet for classified programs, sensitive military operations, top secret projects. So he goes all the way back. 1935, there was the Tizard Committee uh, that ultimately led to uh, a workable radar system before World War II. Right. Uh, This group then uh, worked closely with the Americans and there was a massive scientific exchange between the Brits and and the Americans that ultimately had a huge contribution to the Manhattan Project. Um, Most of uh, the the highly classified research was done at Bordsey Manor on the Deben Estuary, which is just north of the town of Felixstowe which is a stone's throw away from Bentwaters and Woodbridge. Well, Felixstowe as well has the Felixstowe uh, fire demon. Yeah. Remember that crazy story? So this, Nick's not even talking about the weird paranormal stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's just talking about classified military stuff, top secret stuff. Then there's the legend of Shingle Street. Have you heard this? This is one of the craziest legends of World War II. So it it centers around this small village in Suffolk called Shingle Street. And it's between Bordsey and Orford, which I just mentioned. And Nick quotes uh, an article from The Guardian uh, that writes about how it's always been speculated that, well, it was evacuated in 1940. And there's always been these rumours and conspiracies over why. Uh, There's conspiracies about a German landing, like the Nazis actually tried to invade England. Um, 
There's rumours about dead German soldiers along the beach. There's um, airmen washing up. There's weapons testing. There's Navy conspiracies. Uh, the BBC wrote about it as well, saying that a World War II mystery over a failed Nazi invasion at a remote beach in Suffolk may have been manufactured by Britain's head of propaganda. So this is another rumour that it was it was created to kind of boost morale to spread this rumour throughout the country that, oh, you know, the Nazis tried to invade, but we totally crushed them. Mm, okay. But then there was a, a, a former Daily Express journalist who who claimed that it was organised, well, again, Britain's black propaganda unit, but I think he broke the story of Mike Payton. And Mike Payton said that his father was a soldier during World War II. And he recalled how he was called out to Shingle Street to pick up dead bodies. And this guy, Mike Payton, said, my father and the rest of his colleagues were called out to pull bodies from the sea. But the common link between all the bodies is that they were all in German uniforms and were all badly burnt. So there's it's a whole bunch of strange conspiracies surrounding this. Did the Germans try to teleport people onto the beach or something using highly advanced technology and it went wrong? Something happened there and then just a few years later, just around the corner, like literally miles down the road, uh, they, they were given the green light to start constructing RAF Woodbridge. Mm, okay. So there's more classified programs. There's Orford Ness, this place where the UK National Trust says that the 1950s saw the construction of specialised facilities to exploit post-war technologies like nuclear power. There was the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment put there. Uh, at the height of the Cold War, they were working on the atomic bomb and moving into the 1960s, you've got this top secret Anglo-American System 441A radar project codenamed Cobra Mist that was in that same area. So when Nick says we have to look at the area, does he mean that there's something special about the geography of that area? Is it electromagnetic? Is that what we're talking about? No, or is it just a highly military active area? He's just saying if you want to go and test and work on and develop, some exotic technology to fight the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. then you go and do it in this area. You, you go and use one of the bases or you build a facility. Here's a perfect example that you're going to love. Uh, Nick writes that from the early 1970s to the start of the 1990s, an astonishing number of scientists and technicians who were employed by a certain powerful company died in ways that were deemed by the UK's media and some figures in government to be deeply suspicious. Some of those who lost their lives worked on US President Ronald Reagan's Star Wars program, the Strategic Defense Initiative program. And of course, that company is Marconi Electronic Systems. Ah, uh, yeah. Now, now they're part, today they're part of BAE. Mm. Um, but he's got the story of, you know this one, Aaron, Jonathan Wash. So Jonathan Wash was the guy who was working for British Telecom, but he had deep connections to Marconi. And in 1985, Wash died after falling or being pushed from a window in his hotel room on the Ivory Coast in West Africa. Mm. It's like, what? Why was he assassinated in West Africa? And I think ultimately, though, that did the conclusion was that it was a suicide. Well, that was the official conclusion. Well, the official one but was, yeah, but that wasn't the case. What, it well, what was bizarre about it is he was telling his family and friends before he went on the trip that I think I'm being followed. Yeah, I he think, was terrified. I think someone's after me. I'm going to get out of here. I'm just going to leave the country. Um, and notably, the British telecom facility where Wash worked was a top secret research facility at Martlesham Heath in Suffolk, just down the Same road area. from Rendlesham Forest. Yeah. 
So how close are we talking when we're mentioning all these crazy secret black ops projects that the UK and, and US was running in the country? What, how concentrated is it? Well, Nick breaks this down for us. The distance from Martlesham Heath to Rendlesham Forest, where the Marconi guy was connected, that's 11 miles. If you go from Shingle Street, where all those Nazi conspiracies were, it's 7.6 miles. A trip from those woods to uh, Bordsey, where the other projects were, 10 miles. How far might Orford Ness be from Rendlesham Forest? 6.8 miles. Mm. So it's all within a very close radius. So how, how long does it take to drive 10 miles? Like 15 minutes? Yeah, if that. You're like 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes drive between all these top secret black ops facilities doing God knows what with advanced military technology. Is it very populated there? It must be more sparsely populated. I mean, obviously more than, than cities, but... It's the countryside. Yeah, you don't want people There's seeing... a little village. Right. <laughs> with two shops. I, I have no idea, actually. I have no idea what it was like in, in the 80s. But Nick writes, the entire area around Rendlesham Forest has for decades been an absolute melting pot for secret activity in the UK government. He says conspiracies, classified radar-based operations, top secret weapons programs, uh, Nazis fried to the bone, state-sponsored murder of Marconi scientists. It's, it's all connected. But here's the underlying point. He says none of it is connected to UFOs. No, I know, that's actually not that surprising. Like, it's about yeah. the Cold War. Yeah, it's this about is, weapons technology. This is not a UFO thing. And he says, with just about the entire area having been secretly used by the government and the military for decades, why shouldn't that very same area have been chosen for what happened in Rendlesham Forest in December of 1980? Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a second, though. Why would they perform some type of highly experimental test right next to a military base where you're going to have airmen, uh, officers witnessing this thing and then keeping them out of the loop. Well, it's that word that he uses that really gets your mind racing, isn't it? He says the area was chosen. Yeah. It's a setup. But a setup for what? So Nick takes us back to Kenneth Arnold, uh, he ta- the birth of the flying saucer. He does a great rundown uh, of... Yeah, the flying saucer era exploding from 1947, Uh, the FBI getting interested in the reports of flying objects across the United States. The CIA was created in the same year, remember, 1947. Uh, Then the FBI starts to think that the flying saucer stories are some kind of communist plot and uh, Hoover thinks that it might be the US military building secret weapons, but they're not telling the FBI and the military thinks it might be the Russians that are doing it. It's just madness. Like aliens and distant worlds and UFOs, Nick points out, were on the minds of captains, colonels and generals in the heart of the Pentagon. There was fear and paranoia running rampant within the government and it was just a crazy time. It was really unpredictable. So along comes the Air Force and the US Air Force, we know, between 1948 and 1969, they ran their three infamous programs Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book, trying to get to the get to the bottom of the UFO mystery. Of course, UFO researchers today, and I think correctly conclude, much of what they did was just a whitewash. It was just a write-off, just to essentially say, here's our here's our rubber stamp yep. of what the UFO phenomenon is. There's nothing to the mystery, uh, and essentially file it away so they don't have to deal with it. But it was also we did something. Well. Nick has a really great insight on this period of time. 
it's something he says that was overlooked in the Air Force's investigations into the UFO phenomenon. And he says it is right at the heart of the puzzle of Rendlesham. It's yeah. right at the mystery. So the, the overlooked Air Force research is basically the Black Ops Weather Bureau. <laughs> I know it's late here in the studio, Ben, but did I hear you correctly? Did you just say the Black Ops Weather Bureau? I was a Black Ops weather man back in 1984. Yeah, I mean, are we going back to Black Ops Coast? I would actually believe Black Ops Coast Guard over Black Ops Weather Bureau. I was predicting storms you wouldn't believe, Aaron. What are we talking about? It was top secret. I can't talk about it. <laughs> no, you have to explain it. I'm a meteorologist. If I tell you what I know, I'll have to kill you. <laughs> are you going to stab you with your pen protector <laughs> in your pocket? So, <laughs> basically, it, this is really important. Nick says there's this little-known fact that when the Air Force started its UFO investigations in the late 40s, it quietly farmed out a lot of the work to private companies that already had relationships with the military, that had already done contracts, that were already, you know... That's standard, that makes sense. Already had clearances. Yeah. And one particular program that was handed over went to the Weather Bureau. There was top secret stuff being done by the Weather Bureau. The Air Force wanted the Weather Bureau staff to find out everything it could on ball lightning. Now, there's a really important description on this. There was a 1949 Project Grudge document that had the results of the Weather Bureau's investigation into ball lightning. And this is this is what was revealed. This is what the Bureau uncovered. It's very matter of fact, and we, we know a lot of this stuff already, but spherical, roughly globular, egg-shaped or pear-shaped, many times with projecting streamers or flame-like irregular masses of light, luminous in appearance, described in individual cases by different colours, but mostly reported as deep red and often as glaring white. Some of the cases of ball lightning observed have displayed uh, excrescences of the appearances of little flames emanating from the main body of the luminous mass. Luminous streamers have developed from it and propagated slantwise towards the ground. In rare instances, it has been reported that the luminous body may break up into a number of smaller balls, which may appear to fall towards the earth like a rain of sparks. It has even been reported that the ball has suddenly ejected a whole bundle of many luminous radiating streamers towards the earth and then disappeared. There have been reports by observers of ball lightning to the effect that the phenomenon appeared to float through a room or other space for a brief interval of time without making contact with or being attracted to objects. So all very intriguing stuff. Ball lightning is fascinating. Oh, it's really cool. And in fact, I'll try and link to it in the show notes if you send it to me again. You sent me a really amazing video this week of ball lightning being caught crossing over a, a train track. Yeah, I don't know if that's real. Oh, Someone think- responded to the video saying it's CGI. Yeah, well, you can't tell these days. It looks way too good. It does look good. But I hope it's real because it looks incredibly cool. Well, we'll link to it anyway, just so you could get an impression yeah. as to what ball lightning... And this is what people yeah. report, though. What you're seeing is what people report. Well, it's great to look at that video in our show notes of ball lightning to get a sense of what the Air Force was actually interested in. Because mm. Nick points out that... The Air Force really didn't care about whether some UFO encounters were ball lightning. They, they were, they were going to conclude what they had always set out to conclude. It didn't really matter what the evidence was in a lot of the cases. But even the description you just mentioned there, like a very bland description of ball lightning, it sounds actually like what people saw at Rendlesham. 
like multiple balls floating. Is this what they're trying to get to? Are they suggesting that this whole thing... Well, when I read that, I thought, oh, come on, Nick, is this your breakthrough theory that Rendlesham was just ball lightning? No. No, that's not... Nick wouldn't do that. No. No, this is way more interesting. So the Air Force, again, wasn't interested in UFO encounters being explained by ball lightning. That's not why they contracted the Weather Bureau. So why would they? The, The Weather Bureau went black ops because the Air Force wanted to find out if ball lightning could be harnessed and controlled and if it could be weaponized. Oh. And the answer to that question, can ball lightning be weaponized? Nick says, yes. Is that why those Nazi soldiers were found all burnt to a crisp? Were they fired upon by ball lightning? Well, I don't think Nick explores that connection. Well, there might be something there. But the timing's off. That's probably too early. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, Nick started to dig into this idea. He started to uh, research this and, and discovered that the US Air Force in 1950 had shared with the US Army some of the research it had undertaken at the Maryland base Edgewood Arsenal. Now, Edgewood Arsenal is uh, a chemical weapons arsenal established in 1917, and it's located in the present-day Edgewood area of the Aberdeen Proving Ground. It's 13,000 acres. Um, It was used for the development of testing of chemical agent munitions, and in October of 1971, Nick points out, it merged with the Aberdeen Proving Ground and became the Edgewood area of Aberdeen Proving Ground. Probably a bunch of UFO stories (laughs) connected to there as well. Certainly, yeah. So Nick starts digging and he's diving into the National Archives and this is what he digs up. He found a letter from the Air Force to the Edgewood Arsenal. It was dated May the 18th, 1950. This is what it said. You are aware we have already discussed with Mr. Clapp the theoretical incendiary applications of ball lightning that might be useful to the several German projects at Kirtland. Useful data should be routed to Mr. Clapp through this office. Now, Nick was never able to figure out who this Mr. Clapp was, but the fact that he's not given a you know, military t- title, he's not Sergeant Clapp or you know Colonel Clapp, Mr. means he was probably a civilian scientist, right? Um, he may have well been connected to the work on this incendiary applications of ball lightning. Now, we know uh, Kirtland mentioned there is Kirtland Air Force Base, but it also mentions several German projects. What what German projects would you have at Kirtland Air Force Base? Well, we know from Project Paperclip, I mean, even the official stuff, that the Germans were experimenting with some really strange technologies. And the unofficial stuff that we've heard is that they were experimenting, like what I mentioned with the teleporting stuff, they were trying some really incredibly crazy technologies. Right, and you're on the money there because Nick points out this is a nod to Paperclip. This is Operation yeah. Paperclip. That's why you would mention there was a German project running at Kirtland. It's the the German scientists, the Nazi scientists have been brought over and they're, they're working away. So Nick points out that what this tells us is that by the start of the 1950s, work was going ahead in the field of ball lightning for use within the military. It was already happening. They were already developing it and it was going ahead in deep secrecy. So yet again... We're back to Nazi super weapons. It always comes back Is to Nazi fu- super weapons. Like two out of five episodes, we end up doing Nazi <laughs> super weapons. I'm just like. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
You know what? It feels good to have Hitler back. We, I mean, that sounds terrible. <laughs> Don't put that sound bite by itself. Yeah, what I mean, we haven't had Hitler on the show in a while. So we haven't had back. Hitler's angry soundboard That's on the right. show. Yes. I don't think we should also say we haven't had Hitler on the show. That sounds like he's been a guest a couple of times. <laughs> and we haven't had him back in the studio. And we're well, disappointed. last time it was just so embarrassing we couldn't have him back. <laughs> and we're disappointed about it. So Nick starts getting all these Freedom of Information Act requests out. He starts going ahead and pumping out all these FOI requests and he's trying to find anything that the government has on ball lightning. Just basically sending out, send me everything you have on ball lightning. Would there really be that much in the government though of ball lightning outside of the Weather Bureau? Dude, he finds some incredible stuff. Such as? So he's got a list here of some of the documents he, he got declassified. There was the theory of the lightning ball and its application to the atmospheric phenomenon called flying saucers that was published by Carl uh, Benedicts in 1954. He found another document uh, sent to him called Ball Lightning, a survey by J.R. McNally of the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. There's one from uh, D.V. Ritchie, Reds may use lightning as a weapon, which was from August 1959. They're all very bland, though. I mean, oh, Reds using it as a weapon, that's pretty well, that's long. That's better, the Soviets. But it's all very scientific. Uh, there was the experimental and theoretical program to investigate the feasibility of confining plasma in free space by radar beams. Oh, by stop. <laughs> Harland in 1960, but that was from the Armour Research Foundation. So where the these things are coming from is kind of interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of military applications, you can tell. Like, why is the Armour Research Foundation interested in confining plasma in free space by radar beams? Are they trying to make some kind of uh, Directed energy... Directed weapon. Well, energy shell, energy armour? Yeah. Um, one, document, armor. one document really stood out, though. And it was called The Survey of Kugelblitz Theories for Electromagnetic Incendiaries. It was by W.B. Little and C.E. Wilson. At the time, they were employed by Melpar Inc., which was described as, quote, an American government contractor in the 20th century Cold War period. But basically, they are a private sector company doing a bunch of high technology work for the military. What the hell is Kugelblitz? It's- Based on smooch plates and technology. Oh, yeah. 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 Tell me more. No, I don't know anything about classified. That's all you got? Yeah. Just schmutz plates. Yeah, schmutz okay. plates. So, Kugelblitz is German for ball lightning. Ah, uh, okay. So, we have the ball lightning theories for electromagnetic incendiaries, and we know what incendiaries are. So, this is where Nick goes into this specific paper from uh, Little and Wilson. Guess where they were assigned? Edgewood Arsenal. Really? So they could have been tied to that declassified document that came out talking about these German projects that were actually going ahead, that were in action. They were assigned to the special projects operation at Edgewood Arsenal. And Nick found all these, you know, papers from the guys, all this information he's pulled out. They wrote that the purpose of this study was to review the theory and experimental data on ball lightning to determine whether ball lightning is a high or low energy phenomenon and, if it is a high energy phenomenon, define an effective theoretical and experimental program to develop a potential incendiary weapon. So straight away, they're straight up like, let's build a weapon out of this. Uh, Three major categories were established, they said. There's the classical plasma theories, the quantum plasma theories, and the non-plasma theories. 
A theoretical and experimental Kugelblitz program is recommended by which the most promising high-energy theories could be developed so that a weapons application could be realised. And Nick says on the matter of what exactly ball lightning was, they had a few ideas. Because we still don't know. No, we don't. We really just don't understand what it is, how it, where it comes from, how it's formed. They threw out a couple of ideas, these guys. They said it's plasma created by a lightning strike and maintained by electromagnetic waves. Uh, perhaps it's a non-plasma phenomenon. Maybe it's some kind of nuclear theory they had. They said it's the assumption that the ball is radioactive carbon-14 created from atmospheric nitrogen by the action of thermal neutrons liberated by a lightning strike. <laughs> I'd love it's to sit, a decent theory. I'd love to sit down with these guys back in the 1950s and just you know shoot the shit. But Wilson and Little added that since the high energy Kugelblitz is clearly the only type of weapon of importance, we believe that a major effort should be expended along these lines. And as the work progressed, they reported that if Kugelblitz is to be developed as a distinctive weapon, a means of guiding the energy concentration towards a potential target must be achieved. Some preliminary considerations on this subject have resulted in the idea of applying laser beams to such a task. So this is what they were working on. They wanted to get Kugelblitz ball lightning to be directed by lasers as some kind of super weapon. And they went on to write that a concentrated analytical and experimental effort should be made very soon as the implications of successful work could be far-reaching. So it's kind of fascinating what they were working on. But you might be listening to this just going, you know, what, what has this got to do with Rendlesham Forest? Well, if we go back to Colonel Holt's report, we go back to what he saw that night, what he experienced. Well, his audio as well. I'm thinking he was describing the pulsing. He was describing the, the red light. It sounds to me like it could be some type of directed energy. Yeah, Nick Nick does a great job of comparing the reports from these scientists working on top secret projects in the 1950s and what Holt saw that night in 1980. Holt wrote that there was a red sun-like object that was or light that was seen through the trees. It moved about and pulsed. At one point, it appeared to throw off glowing particles and then broke into five separate white objects and disappeared. Like what the description of ball lightning. We just read. Yeah. That's what ball lightning does. Immediately thereafter, three star-like objects were noticed in the sky. The object to the south was visible for two or three hours and beamed down a stream of light from time to time. Does that sound like a laser? A laser that might be used to guide the Kugelblitz? Look, it does. But the problem is where, and I'm sure you'll explain this, but I have to ask, I'm sure you listening are probably thinking the same thing. What about the triangular craft that the guy touched and got all the information from? Great question. Very good question. We'll come to that in a moment. Uh, he says reports of beams of light in conjunction with moving lights that ejected bright particles. Of course, that all, this all sounds like the, the Kugelblitz theories, the electromagnetic incendiaries document that Nick found, the control of ball lightning via lasers. And Holt's description of the phenomena in the woods, you know, throwing off glowing particles, that's what the Weather Bureau described for the Air Force about ball lightning. Yeah. A rain of sparks, they said. A bundle of illuminating, radiating streamers towards the earth. A red sun-like light. It's uncanny. The description is uncanny. It all matches up. Now, the work of those two scientists, Little and Wilson, that was completed in 1965. So this is 15 years 
before we had this crazy incident in the English forest. So Nick points out that this is plenty of time for this secret program to develop something more sophisticated. Yeah. Something that could be experimented with, maybe. But there has to have been more. You know, this is going back to your question a moment ago. Seeing ball lightning is one thing, but there's an alien craft. It's not just a lighthouse. It's not just ball lightning. And having ones and zeros beamed into your head by ball lightning doesn't make sense either. So there's got to be a lot more going on here. And in fact, there is. And Nick really dives into this other aspect of what was going on that night. So he goes back to an article that appeared in The New Yorker on December the 9th back in 2012. It was called Operation Delirium. Decades after a risky Cold War experiment, a scientist lives with secrets. Now, the scientist they're referring to is Colonel James Ketchum. He spent two decades in the US Army and Ketchum became the military's leading expert in a secret Cold War experiment to fight enemies with clouds of psychochemicals that temporarily incapacitate the mind, causing, in the words of one officer, a selective malfunctioning of the human machine. So it turns out that this highly classified program of mind control was secretly run, guess where? Edgewood Arsenal. The same place where the Kugelblitz program was being developed. So is he suggesting that some type of hallucinogenic weapons test was being conducted in conjunction with the Kugelblitz? It all came out of the same special projects uh, division at Edgewood Arsenal. Not only were they working on weaponizing ball lightning, controlling it with lasers, in the very same building, they were working on these mind control programs using clouds of psychochemicals. Now, uh, Nick starts going into these uh, human experiments on mind control. Um, again, it's weird. This is all from the same place. He's pulling out all these documents on what was going on at Edgewood Arsenal in regards to the mind control stuff. Uh, LSD was used. Yep. Uh, BZ was used. Uh, and it was all tested on military volunteers at Edgewood, Edgewood Arsenal. Uh, sometimes, depending on the setting and the mood, if you're under the influence of... I mean, we know LSD, but BZ as well. What's BZ? BZ, I, I don't have the chemical name in front of me, but it causes terrifying visions, changes your mood. Uh, it might cause alien visions, Nick suggests. And it can be delivered um, in gaseous form. Yeah, exactly. He has quotes or information pulled out from Medscape that says, um, here it is, here's the, the chemical warfare agent, a QNB or, or BZ. It's three... Quinucladinyl benzylate. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Spot on. Brilliant. Uh, it's one of the most potent anti-cholinergenic uh, psychomimetics known with only small doses necessary to produce incapacitation. It is classified as a hallucinogenic chemical warfare agent. QNB usually is disseminated as an aerosol and the primary route of absorption is through the respiratory system. So breathe it in. It's also totally odorless, so you have no idea that yeah, you've breathed it in. No. And it, with other drugs in that kind of category, the biggest differentiator is it just it lasts for much longer. Hang on, but LSD lasts for like 12 hours. How I long know. does this last for? Uh, Days? I don't know, but, but a lot longer. <laughs> longer. So uh, you'd see the tactical advantage that something like this would have if you deployed this on a battlefield yeah. and they don't know they're breathing it in and what's happening. And I have some examples of that coming up, but... We know LSD, we know that 
changes your your thoughts and perceptions and emotions. Um, hallucinations come through. Sensations seem real, but they're created by the mind. So Nick starts talking about Project uh, 112, which was in between 1962 and 1974, the US Department of Defense exposed service members to biological agents. Uh, so he's really just laying out this history of testing these um, aerosol hallucinogens on servicemen and sometimes civilians. Yeah. Um, but what's really important, the reason he mentions Project 112 is that it was, yes, it was a US program, but personnel from the UK's chemical and biological research facility at Porton Down mm-hmm. in Wiltshire, England, were very much connected to the studies. So this UK connection to Porton Down gets really interesting. And Nick starts to dive into what Porton Down is and why it's so important to the story. So Porton Down, this all started back in 1916. Uh, but it wasn't until 1940 that be, it basically became the hub of Britain's chemical warfare. Isn't that where the British produced VX gas or they store VX gas? Probably. Uh, even to this day, it's still, you know, Ministry of Defence controlled. They still do biological research there. Uh, and they tested all sorts of chemicals on British so- British soldiers. Yeah. And the soldiers would be told, hey, we're doing an experiment. <laughs> but often they would just be told... It, we're going to see if we can uh, cure the cold. It's totally nothing weird's going to happen it's, at all. It's so incredibly unethical, and I'm really at a loss to understand why armies think that it's okay to experiment on their servicemen. I mean, these are the people that are protecting us, and they just readily... Like Maralinga in Australia, where, they, where the British were testing nuclear weapons, they set off nuclear weapons and told the soldiers to turn around. Yeah, well, they didn't really understand. Well, they, they did. They knew exactly what was going on, but they continued to expose them to radiation. Sure, you're right. It's it's always morally questionable. Um, it's easy for us to sit in our cushy studio behind I desks, know. not facing the wrath of the Soviet Union well, that's, <laughs> and say that's, yeah. how evil these people were. But at the same time, it's now, actually, I see what you're saying. Well, I see what Nick's saying. It's all beginning to become clear because this whole time when you're describing this, I'm thinking why they wouldn't do this to their own soldiers. Of course they would. Of course they would test these things. Well, part of the worry was that Remember, Project Paperclip wasn't all the Nazi scientists. That was half, wasn't it? Yeah, a bunch half, of L half went to Soviet Union. A bunch of them went to the Soviets, and the Soviets were doing what you know. If we look through the history, more exotic stuff than what was going on in the US, and far less ethics as well. They weren't restrained by moral code, so they did far more terrible things. So there was a worry that the Soviets had already cracked ball lightning weapons. They had already cracked plasma weapons and all sorts of energy stuff. Maybe it was specifically due to the particular individuals they got from the Nazis. Maybe mm. they were working in different areas. But, you know, going back to Porton Down, uh, again, there was this highly secret independent group, uh, the biology department, uh, who were investigating the reality of biological warfare, and they were testing LSD on British soldiers down there. Uh, there was a report in The Guardian back in 2005 where one of these soldiers remembered from 50 years ago, his name was Eric Gow, he had this weird experience. He was 19 years old at the time. He was a sailor. And he remembers going to this clandestine military base in Porton Down, and they just gave him something to drink in a sherry glass. Didn't tell him what it was or what he was going to experience. And the next thing he knew, he just sees a tiger jumping out of the wall. Yeah. Just tigers jumping around everywhere. 
and all the people in the room, their faces started melting and he saw eyes all over their cheeks, like they had a hundred eyes, like a spider or something. It was just bizarre. And he felt the government had never explained what had happened to him. The news report from The Guardian back in 2005 was that he had actually received an official explanation for the very first time and it was MI6 testing LSD on him and other servicemen, obviously. So what is the connection between Port and Down and all their LSD experiments and Rendlesham Forest? Well, this is where Nick goes into the researcher uh, Georgina Bruni. Georgina Bruni wrote this fantastic book on Rendlesham called You Can't Tell the People and came out in November of 2000. But Nick actually met up with her in the 1990s and they were part of a small group of people who were investigating this link between UFOs and Porton Down, the chemical weapons, you know, base in the UK. What's suggesting that some people had been seeing UFOs, they weren't seeing UFOs, well, they were having I, hallucinations? I don't know what their line of thinking was, but they were looking into it. They were looking into this connection. Um, we can understand why. Yeah, of course, yeah. If you've been given a ton of psychedelic drugs and you start seeing things in the sky, yeah, what's behind it? So as a result of this, because they were all working on it together, Nick and Georgina agreed to share information with each other. And that's how he came across Georgina's incredible information on the Rendlesham story. So Georgina discovered that in late December of 1980, there was actually a team from Porton Down that was sent or dispatched on a mission in the heart of Rendlesham Forest. They were dressed in full-body hazmat outfits and they entered the woods on a classified operation. Now, it was assumed that they went in there kind of as a cleanup to try and get rid of any biological agents or clean up the radiation or do whatever to get rid of the hazards that were there from the UFO encounter. Mm -hmm. They were a cleanup team. Uh, that's what Georgina assumes. Nick said that's exactly what he thought as well. But the truth was very, very different. He said, Georgina confided in me a list of various characters in the story that were tied to Porton Down and Rendlesham. And basically, they were the names of several people who were her sources. They'd confided in her. And Georgina was really worried about what she'd uncovered. She was worried about her safety. She was worried about uh, her eyewitnesses being taken out. She made Nick sign a, a document saying he would never reveal the names of those sources. So he sticks to his word. Even though Georgina uh, passed away years ago, Nick says, I'm not going to reveal those names to protect their safety. But... Georgina's theory that this team in hazmat suits arrived at Rendlesham to clean up after that first night in December of 1980 was wrong. They turned up before the Rendlesham Forest incident. So did they spray the trees with some type of substance or... They were there the night before. Now, Georgina learnt this after her book was published this is the terrible truth that's revealed, Nick says. The terrible truth is that the team from Porton Down, they weren't there to investigate UFO incidents at all. They were there to secretly help create them. So they essentially laced the area? The plan involved on that first night, the quiet and careful release of what Georgina described as a low-grade aerosol-based hallucinogen into the woods. Time-wise, this was planned to take place in precise conjunction with the other team that were handling the ball lightning weapon and the aerial display. 
So is that why the animals were going crazy? Because they saw the bolt they weren't being... Well, they might have been affected by the hallucinogen, but they were being disturbed by the electromagnetic effects of the, the ball lightning weapon. Who knows why they were freaking out, but... There was, I mean, even if it wasn't a UFO, I think uh, seeing ball lightning weapons and a bunch of lasers and having LSD chemicals in the air is enough to freak out a pig. Well, of course, but the reason why I mention it is because you've got the Oz factor that we hear in, in so many paranormal cases where when someone is not on drugs, not mm. drunk, not being exposed to classified hallucinogen weapons, when all of a sudden, right before they have an experience, whether it's a UFO or Bigfoot, anything else, everything goes silent. You know what makes this even weirder is it looks like there may have been more than one Rendlesham Forest-style incident that night in the UK. You mean at another base? Well, there was another base about 40 miles away called RAF Watton, and Nick was looking into whether or not they had caught anything on radar that night because he's still looking into the UFO angle back then. And it's close enough to be able to get a radar match. Yeah, and they reported that there was uh, nothing, you know, nothing on their radar, nothing reported, but they didn't hand over all the information because Nick Pope revealed to Nick that Georgina Bruni's RAF police source knew of a far greater story. Apparently on the same night, a pair of military dog handlers were patrolling the facility when something really strange happened. The pair was shocked and baffled to see just outside the perimeter fence a number of strange figures. It wasn't aliens, it was a bunch of people dressed in nuclear, biological and chemical outfits, head to foot, hazmats. Uh, and one of Bruni's police sources revealed he and his uh, a comrade were interviewed, questioned and warned to remain silent about what they had seen that night and who they had seen. And their police notebooks were taken, uh, their logbooks were taken and disappeared. It, it was a cover-up. And it seems as though there might have been another aerosol deployment outside of this other base. And in addition to this, several uh, prisons were mysteriously evacuated that night as well. Now, this comes up later. There's a whole chunk of research Nick does on this. It's a really fascinating part of the book. But he's investigating, you know, where, where the wind can carry these aerosol deposits and the prisons just happen to be Oh, in the path of the, the wind direction. And so as a precaution, they have to create some cover story and evacuate the prisons. Now, later on, all these uh, investigators and even members of the government tried to get to the bottom of why these prisons were evacuated in the middle of the night on the same night this Rendlesham Forest incident took place and they just couldn't get an answer. The, either the information's missing or, you know, you don't have clearance. Or it's just deliberately covered up. It's a cover-up. And you know, Nick's saying that what they ultimately discovered, what Georgina Bruni and he discovered, this idea was completely plausible because something similar had secretly been undertaken 16 years before anyone was talking about aliens in Rendlesham Forest, where drugs and forests and hallucinogens and military personnel were all connected. And you have to go back to 1964 near Porton Down, and this was the project known as, well, this was its code name, Small Change Money Bags and Recount. Now, this is, this is an experiment where basically they sent the 41 Royal Marine Commando Unit out into the field, and they were the guinea pigs. And on day one, 
uh, they took part in this operation which was out in the fields and woods near Porton Down. And it was simply an exercise to, you know, like an orienteering exercise to get the commando unit used to the environment. Uh, they gave them a bunch of water at the start of the day and sent them out, gave them a mission, and they performed perfectly. You know, they're commandos, right? And on the start of the second day, things went very differently for the commandos. Let's uh, take a listen. The troops were given the same quantity of water to drink before each day's exercise. Unknown to the troops, the drug was added to the water on the second day. The drug was given orally to the men in the hospital ward at 11.15, and they immediately embussed, arriving at the exercise area 10 minutes later. At 11.40, the first effects of the drug make their appearance. The men no longer take cover, they relax and begin to giggle. At this time, one man is more severely affected than the others, losing all contact with reality, dropping his rifle and becoming unable to take any part in the operation. By midday, they were talking to each other's assholes, <laughs> dressing up as women <laughs> and talking to trees. In fact, he has to be withdrawn from the exercise a few minutes later. Section 2 starts to advance to Redwood. The troops have lost their air of urgency and many men are laughing. Meanwhile, radio communication at the beaches has become difficult, if not impossible. Men with no specific task to perform have relapsed into laughter and inconsequential behaviour, though they are still capable of sustained physical effort. This man nearly succeeded in felling this tree using only a spade. 70 minutes after the administration <laughs> of the... This man started digging a hole to China and nearly succeeded. With one man climbing a tree, the troop commander gives up, saying... I Oh, he said at the end, I must have missed the audio, but he basically said at the end, uh, we give up, our unit is completely ineffective, uh, we've been taken out of the battlefield, it's game over. And he's laughing but, while he's on the radio saying this. The thing about it, though, is that I mean, the deployment there uh, of the hallucinogen is very different to what's being described in Rendlesham Forest. I mean, it's actually given to them that they ingest it. That's the thing. And this is part of an issue I have with Nick's uh, conclusions here. If there's some kind of aerosol LSD that Colonel Holt and his uh, fellow officers are given that night... It's a very inefficient way of distributing it. They're still roaming around the woods quite effectively um, dealing with some strange phenomenon. I mean, you can tell on the audio... He's not laughing. He's not giggling about what they're seeing. I guess it's a different situation. He's not out in the middle of the field with his buddies, you know, one guy pulling his pants off and, you know, speaking to the birds. But um, but you know, they don't sound like they're on LSD in the audio. Depending on what the substance is, it may not be LSD. It might be something else that they've engineered. But for the most part, I think you kind of know when you're not in your right mind. I mean, it's like, I mean, when you're drinking, you kind of know when you're like, oh, I'm getting a bit drunk here. I'm assuming it would be kind of similar as well if you're taking a hallucinogen. Like, you kind of start to go, this can't be real. That's why the aerosol product was not LSD. Yeah, it can't be LSD. It was, it was something else. And this is, like, just the start of the story. It, Nick blows this out to connections you you wouldn't even imagine. Like, this... I'm not surprised. This Nick's is good with that. This is connected to uh, famous UFO cases... This is connected to a bizarre hologram type technology, and he in, in, interviews. Seriously? Yeah, he interviews uh, Ray Bosch about oh, some yeah. of this stuff. And I know you might have some Ray Bosch stuff coming up. I do, yes. 
And he he actually finishes this section. And I, I want to leave it here because there's so much more to discover on this. This is this is kind of just Nick peeling back the first layer mm. of this story and setting the scene that something incredibly strange happened, but it was Rendlesham Forest was chosen. It was part of a, a wider program. And uh, the technology that was used was kind of something that had been in the works for quite a while. Now, he, he finishes with the words of, of Jacques Vallée. Uh, Jacques Vallée suggested as well that Rendlesham was a piece of theatre. This is the quote from Jacques. He said, The Bentwaters case is a classic. At the landing site, they had a mix of ordinary guards, officers, sentries, and so on. They all had orders to go to the site under a scenario. And that's not what would have happened if the encounter were real. If a strange object landed on the base, you wouldn't be sending out a hundred people without weapons. The thing has all the earmarks of being staged for the benefit of the witnesses so that they could be studied and the reactions of the different psychological types of different ranks could be studied. And Jacques said, when you think about it, it's not that weird. He concluded that if you're in charge of a project like that, you'd have to test it in conditions where nobody is in danger and you can get the data you need. In cases like this one, not many, but a few of them that I've investigated, I had to conclude that these were tests of virtual reality projectors. So this is where Ooh. it goes into a whole insane field. And the stuff that I've described to you today is really just the start of the story. This is like 20% in. Um, and like I said, Nick blows this out. It goes into uh, you know bizarre connections with bases we're familiar with. Uh, there's, there's technology that will blow your mind. Again, like I said at the start of the show, this is one of Nick's best books you know, in the last kind of five years or so. I think this is really up there with the best ones he's done. I uh, highly recommend you check it out so you can fully, you know, expand the whole theory he's got going here. And in the plus extension coming up, I want to mention a little afterward he had to this story. And this this will blow your mind too if you're a plus member. This is um, really eye-opening because this is such a new book. It just came out. Like he just- Less than a week ago. Yeah, it? he said he finished the manuscript a few weeks ago. It's just hit, they must have streamlined getting this out, getting it edited, because it's just hit the the Kindle store. And something happens to Nick just as he's finished the final manuscript that suggests he's got eyes on him. Yeah. And... Like I said, like John Keel. I mean, he starts looking at something, it starts looking back. His correspondence is being monitored, uh where he lives is maybe being watched and he's being very closely, uh, I guess there's an, there's an eye kept on him. Now it's not necessarily, necessarily nefarious, although it might be, but there's also a suggestion he might be being pushed in a certain direction. Oh, it's really, it's really fascinating. Again, what's been going on to control the narrative as well. Think about it. If this is some type of, of weapons testing, if you've got paranormal researchers out there that have all for so many decades, I mean, it's decades now, they've been saying, it's UFOs, it's UFOs, here's the crazy story about aliens talking to soldiers. And then all of a sudden, you have a paranormal researcher that's been playing the game that they want for so long, suddenly turns around and goes, ah, yeah. no, 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 it's hallucinogens and holograms and crazy technology that seems like it's sci-fi, but it's real. Surely the powers that be have gone, we've got to pull him in. 
We're not going to kill him, but we're going to pull him in. Well, the it's almost like someone wants the information to be released. And yeah, it's I, I don't want to spoil too much. The laser-directed Google Blitz is one part of what's going on. The uh, research on mind control, uh, aerosols is another part what's, that's going on. But there's two or three other factors that are a key to understanding this whole mystery, which you'll find in the rest of the book. Uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. The Rendlesham Forest UFO Conspiracy. I can reveal the full title now. A Close Encounter Exposed as a Top Secret Government Experiment from Nick Redfern. Available now on Kindle. I'll link to it in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. Brilliant work from Nick. Yeah, great stuff. And we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more in the Plus Extension, but it's uh, strange how we're talking about hallucinogenic gases and aerosol distribution because in the Plus Extension, I am going to go into the utilization of gases as a, a weapon and a defensive weapon, but also an offensive weapon, but not utilized by human beings, but rather extraterrestrials that want to get human beings out of the way for their plans. Interesting. And all will be revealed in the Plus Extension. You know, I've been known to use uh, gas as an offensive weapon against oh, my wife that. on numerous occasions. Uh, you do it in the office. You know, I'm well aware of that. It's a, it's a highly advanced <laughs> skill. <laughs> it's actually... Well, this stuff is corrosive, although it could both be corrosive. <laughs> so, look, all I'm going to say is a house melts. <laughs> I'm not kidding. A house actually melts. That's all coming up on Plus. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus for the details. You get the massive extensions we do on these shows every single Friday. You also get entirely exclusive uh, shows that come out on Tuesdays. There's a concurrent running season exclusive to Plus members uh, that comes out every week as well. If you're on Plus, you also get a, a higher quality audio version of the show. You get a, a beautiful uh, 320 kilobits per second compressed MP3. Sounds much better than our free show we put it. Ugh, 128 kilobits. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> I could just I could hear the artifacts in it. Most people can't hear that, but I can hear the artifacts. You can hear it, but you're a bit nuts. Um, you also get uh, an ad-free version of the show. You get uh, discounts off digital products in our store if you want to pick up some of the back catalogue. And speaking of the back catalogue, I've been mentioning over the last couple of weeks that if you sign up for Plus... You are getting the most recent seasons we put out, but on our website, we have about two years of content, maybe a little bit more that hasn't been added to the store yet. Uh, so you can just cycle back through the podcasts category, category or the uh, plus podcasts category and download all these shows that are, are still available. There's a ton of seasons there for you to grab. Uh, so check it out, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. All the details are there, nine bucks a month. Help support your favorite show. That's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out Nick's book, uh, The Wrench Forest UFO Conspiracy. And if you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break for everyone else. We'll catch you next week.